God. First Peter 3, First Peter 3, verse 1 through 7 will be our primary text today. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. This series, Gospel Conversational Marriages, again, it's for all of us. 92% of people will be married or have been married at some point in their lifetime. So again, this is for all of us. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through verse 7. There was a group of Hollywood, I guess you call them sound engineers, for lack of a better term, who came up with this list. And the list they came up with was the, the 10 most dramatic, cinematic sounds. You know, those sounds in the movies that will draw out, evoke emotions. So here's their number 10, a baby's first cry. Number nine, the blast of a siren. Number eight, the thunder of waves crashing on the rocks. Number seven, the roar of a forest fire. Number six, a foghorn. Number five, the slow drip of water. Uh, Number four, horses galloping. Number three, a distant train whistle. Number two, the howl of a dog, and and number one, the number one most dramatic cinematic sound is the wedding march. Uh, Experts claim that the wedding march evokes uh, nearly every emotion from joyness, happiness, sadness, envy, regret, sorrow, tears, etc., etc., But what happens in marriage when the wedding march comes to a halt? What happens when the honeymoon's over? What happens when you and your helpmate are in a stalemate? What happens when wedlock becomes deadlocked? What happens when your wedding day's I will and marriage is at a standstill? What happens when uh, everything COVID-19 moves your marriage into a catch-22? I mean, what happens when your marriage is on lockdown? Well, today I want to speak to you from 1 Peter 3. 1 through 7, on what the Lord has to say to us as husbands and wives, as men, as women, ladies and gentlemen, on how in relationships we are to be subject to those in authority over us. These are really some keys to help us unlock wedlocks, deadlocks. So what we're going to look at, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read the text. You follow along. If you're there, say I'm there. All right, look at this with me. Verse number 1. Somebody say, Likewise. Yeah, this is a word that appears twice, once in verse 1, once in verse 7. It's an important word. Somebody say important. Yes, it is. Likewise, wives, verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children 
If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father, we're so thankful for your word, for your instruction. Holy Spirit, would you take your word, apply it to where we are, help us to respond to you in a way that is good for us and brings glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said. So here's how I would sum up this, this portion of this text. Likewise, be Christ-like. Likewise, be Christ-like. The likewise here ties us back to the example of Jesus we find in chapter 2. That we're to follow his example. That we're to walk in his footsteps. That we're to follow in his steps. As he submitted to the authority of the Father, so be it. We, likewise, are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. So, the takeaway is, likewise, be Christ-like. So, here we have three glimpses of what it looks like to be Christ-like for ladies. Three glimpses of what it looks to be Christ-like for men. We'll begin with the ladies. Ladies first, right? So, number one, ladies, wow, how powerful. And I would challenge ladies to be women of the word. That's what wow stands for, women of the word. Wow, how powerful are women of the word. So what does it look like, ladies, to be Christ-like? God has created three institutions, the home, government, and the church. There are things in the world that come against the home, and the church. In fact, God gave us these three institutions for order. Somebody say order. Our God is a God of order. In chapter 2, we are told this is how to live outside the home. As citizens, submit to the authority over you. As employees, submit to the authority over you. So they're outside the home, this is how we're to live. But then, in chapter 3, he moves inside the home. Hey, there's some order inside the home. There's some authority uh, to be submitted to. Uh, authority to be in and authority to be under in the home. And so, this is laid out for us, the home, how do we live Christ-like in the home? So that's what we're going to look at today. So, wow, how powerful. Now, these three institutions, home, government, and church, are important. And what happens in our world, socialism, communism, uh, host of other isms seek to destroy the church, seek to destroy the home while elevating government as God. Well, government is not God. Government did not institute God. God instituted government. God is God. And so if we're going to learn how to be Christ-like, we don't need to look to the government. They'll never tell us. We need to look to God's Word. He tells us. And so the first one here is for the ladies, and I'd say this to our ladies, a wife or a woman who has a heart after God the Father's own heart, is a powerful tool in the hands of God the Holy Spirit. And this is how you're to have a heart after God's own heart. Look at it with me, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. Just look how powerful it is for a woman 
to be in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Look how powerful this is. So likewise, it begins that way. In the same way, similarly, pertaining to being similar in some respect, in like manner is what the word likewise mean, what means. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Well, like what? Likewise ties this to a text before it. And the context of this whole chapter is there are believers who are scattered Aliens in a strange land, wanderers on the, in the world, passers-by on this planet, believers who are on the earth, who are to live in such a way that they follow Christ as they hope in a heavenly city. In other words, this is not our home. We're just visiting here. While we're here, this is how we're to live. Like Christ, it points us back to chapter 2 where it gives us an example of Jesus submitting to the Father's authority. Therefore, we too are to submit to authority outside the home and inside the home. Both wife and husband are in authority in the home. The husband is in authority over the home. The husband and the wife are both in authority over the children. Yet both of them are under authority. The wife under the authority of the husband. The husband under the authority of God Almighty. So both of them, this is how it's to work in the home. So wives, it says, be subject to your own husbands. That word means to arrange under, to rank under. It, it means to voluntarily, again, this is a volun, it's, it's, this submission is voluntary. It can't be forced. It can't be coerced. It is voluntary. It's a picture of voluntarily yielding your rights or will to someone else's as an expression of love. That's what it means. It's voluntary. In other words, it tells us in verse 13 in chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submission is not about an institution. It's not about you. It's not about your husband. It's not about your boss. It's about Jesus that's what it's about. So what submission is not? What is it not? Here's what submission is not. Submission is not slavery. Okay? It's, it's not, for example, wives, if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should not do that. You absolutely shouldn't. If your husband causes you or asks you to sin, you should not sin. That is not submission. If your husband is unfaithful to you, submission does not mean that you don't have any biblical recourse. That's not what it means. If your husband abuses you or, or abandons you, that doesn't mean that you have to sit quietly in the home and just take it. That's not what it means. That is not submission. Submission is not that you can never disagree with your husband and offer a differing opinion. That's not submission. And let me say this. I, I know that every situation is far from perfect. You know that and I know that. But let me say this to any woman, any lady, any wife who's in an abusive relationship. Listen to me. It is never okay for anybody to lay their hands on you in an abusive way. Secondly, it's, never, it's always okay for you to seek help with people you trust. That's always appropriate. That's not breaking this instruction and commandment to be submissive. Don't think that way. That's what submission is not. So what is submission? Are you ready for this earth-shattering, trend-setting definition of submission? <laughs> submission, let me say it like this. Submission is the opposite of social media. It's the opposite of a self-asserting, self-promoting, self-absorbing, critical, independent spirit. It's the opposite of self. Submission has nothing to do with self. Submission is deny yourself, 
Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Submission, here's what it is. It's being satisfied at times, being satisfied with less than what you think you deserve and less than what you claim to be your right. You think of others and their interest more than you think of yourself and your interest. It's a picture of the gospel. So wives, who are you to submit to? This is important. Be subject to who? Your own what? Yeah, this isn't a blanket statement saying, hey, women, you have to be submissive to men. Hey, women, you have to subject yourself to men. That is not what this is teaching. This is not teaching that women, you should submit to any husband. No, no, no. This is for the home, inside the home. Submit to your own husband, no one else. Now, if your boss happens to be a male, sure, in that employer-employee relationship, you need to submit to that authority, as would a man in a similar situation. But in the home, wives, submit to your own husband. Husbands, and I know we are all far less than perfect, right? We're in a broken world. You're broken, and I'm broken, and we're broken. This whole thing's broke. So I know there is no situation out there that's perfect. We're far less than perfect. Tanya may tell you that we're perfect, but we're not. You're not, I'm not, we're not. And we need to understand that. So there's some questions as believers we have to ask. And those questions are, is is this human institution worthy of my submission? And the answer is no. Is my husband worthy of my submission? No. Is my boss worthy of my submission? No. It has nothing to do with being worthy or deserving of submission. Because none of us are deserving of being submitted to. In other words, this is not a principle to adhere to. We're not talking about adherence to a principle here. We're talking about obedience to a person, the Lord Jesus. He is our example. We follow in His steps. We obey. We are obedient as He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we ourselves are to submit in similar ways. For the Bible says, for to us you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is our example. The one who humbled himself, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a a servant being found in human likeness. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So again, submission, we're not adhering to a principle. We're obeying a person, the Lord Jesus. So let me show you how powerful it is when you submit to the Lord Jesus. Let me show you how powerful it is. In fact, my pastor says this all the time. He says this all the time. Don't base your obedience on your spouse's performance. Don't base your obedience on your spouse's performance. Don't you say, husbands, well, I'm not going to love my wife because she's not submitting to me. You're not to base your obedience on her performance. 
Wives, don't say, well, I'm not going to submit to my husband because he's not leading me right. Don't you base your obedience on his performance. That's not how this works. We're to obey, period. And how is this so powerful? Look what it says in the second part of verse number 1 here. So that even if some do not obey the word, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That's an unbeliever. That's a person that is not saved. That's someone who is lost. So here's what happened. In the Roman Empire, Christianity was exploding. I mean, it's just growing like wildfire. Just spreading. And what was happening is, there would be two lost, husband and wife, both lost. One of them would get saved. The other one would still be lost. And this new Christian was asking questions. Well, how am I to live with my unbelieving spouse? Am I to leave him or her? No. Well, how am I to live with him and her and relate to him and her? This is what Peter is writing to. This is how you live with an unbelieving spouse. But it's not for just that situation because it reads here very clearly that even if some, not all, but some. So this is an instruction for all wives and those who are living with an unbelieving spouse, married to an unbelieving spouse. They will be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. That they may be one without a word by the conduct of of their wives. Let me translate this. That they may be one without a word. Listen, you cannot nag a man into heaven. Stop nagging him. None of us like to be nagged, do we? None of us like that. Especially when we know the other person's right and he knows you're right. But nagging is only going to push him away. It's only going to make him angry. Don't make him feel like a leper in his own home. Show him the quality of your life. Live it out. Be respectful. Be pure. Be humble. Be gentle in spirit. Love him and serve him that way. Listen, you can't save anyone. I know your heart's in the right place. You want him to come to faith in Christ. You want her to come to faith in Christ. But you can't nag him or her into the kingdom doesn't work that way. You can't save them. Only God can save them. You cannot. Remember the proverb wrote, A nagging wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Stopping her is like trying to stop the wind. Hey, love him. Show him the quality of your life, the conduct, respect, gentle, humble spirit. So what is a wife to do? Well, that's what she's to do. Look what it says. So he can be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Listen, lady, you may be the only Jesus your unsaved spouse ever sees. You may be it. You may be the only Jesus they ever come in contact with. So live in such a way. In other words, start praying for them. Stop bugging them and start bugging God for them on behalf of them. And don't stop. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop seeking God's faith, uh, face on their behalf. Pray for them. Pray for them, pray for them. And again, let, let me be clear. This is not a blanket promise. Peter is not saying, listen, if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, wives, if you live in such a way where you're clean before God and close to God, that your spouse is going to come to faith in Christ. It's not a promise, it's a principle. He is guaranteeing that if you nag him and if you live with a quarrelsome spirit, that will not lead him to faith in Christ. Okay? In other words, a powerful tool in the hands of Almighty God is a wife or a woman after the heart of God. 
that a godly wife living a life in Christ Jesus is a thousand times more effective than any high-pressure tactics out there today. Wow, how powerful are women of the Word. Secondly, number two, how beautiful. Verse 3 and 4, wow, how beautiful. Tim Keller was commenting on Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. You remember when Jesus flipped the tables in the temple? In his father's house, he said. You're, you're, you're like robbers in my father's house. He flipped the tables. And Tim Keller commenting on that, he said, the only person who has the right to rearrange the furniture in the home is the owner. The only one who has the right to arrange biblical roles in the home is Jesus. It's not you, it's not me. It's God's word. And here's what he says. To the ladies, be subject to your own husbands. And here's the beauty in that. Look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning, somebody say adorning, that word means, it's cosmos in the Greek. And God has order to the cosmos, right? He brought order to the cosmos. He, he created creation in an orderly fashion and with order. He's not a God that's out of order. He's a God of order. And so the cosmos is where we get our word cosmetics, right? And lady, you put everything in order when you put your cosmetics on, right? Get everything in order. Yeah, that's the picture here, the adorning. Don't let your adorning be external. Don't let it merely be external. Don't let it just solely be the, the fixing of your hair and the wearing of jewelry and nice clothes. Now, please understand, God is not saying it's sinful or wrong to look your best. The Holy Spirit isn't saying, okay, ladies, you need to look as absolutely awful as you possibly can. That's not what he's saying. It is nothing sinful at all about getting your hair did. Nothing at all sinful about wearing the latest designer labels and the most expensive clothing. Nothing wrong with that at all. That is not what this is saying. What this is saying is the world's emphasis is only on that. The world only emphasizes the external beauty. The world only focuses on what is external. And God the Holy Spirit is saying, no. What matters more is what is internal. The inner beauty of the soul, the inner beauty of the hidden heart, the places only God sees. Be humble and gentle in spirit. Yeah, look your best on the outside and own it. But let your inside be even more beautiful than what's on the outside. The inner beauty is more important than external beauty. In other words, don't let your identity be tied. Don't let your image be tied to what is external. Your identity is not external, it's internal. It's the inner beauty of the heart that God changes and begins to sanctify and begins to shape and mold into the heart of God. Let your adorning, let your adornment, let your cosmetics be the inner beauty of the soul. Not what the world says is beautiful on the outside. And why should you do that? Look what it says. Because the hidden person of the heart, it's an imperishable beauty. Somebody say imperishable. Yeah, that word means unfading. It's an unfading beauty. There's a reason that Tanya gets her hair done every other day. No, I'm just kidding. Every six weeks or so. There's a reason you go to the beauty salon, not one time. You don't go just once, do you? Why not? Why don't you go just one time? Why don't you go to the nail salon just one time? Well, of course not. 
Why? Because hair products and nail products, they fade. They don't last. They're perishable. But there's a beauty that's imperishable. There's a beauty that is unfading. Did you know there's a beauty that does not rely on cosmetics? It doesn't depend on vitamins. It doesn't depend on exercise. It doesn't depend on diets. It doesn't depend on supplements. It doesn't depend on the latest fashion. There's a beauty that is just as beautiful when you're 97 than when you were 17. And that's an inner beauty, a gentle and quiet and humble spirit. And so what the Bible is teaching us here, ladies, wives, is to have that gentle, humble spirit. The the word is meekness, to be meek in spirit. Blessed are the meek. What does that mean? Meekness means that you have power, but it's under control. So ladies, you're to give your power under control to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your mouth under God's control. Your eyes under God's control. Your thoughts under God's control. Your actions under God's control. Your attitude under God's control. Your relationship under God's control. Power under control. How beautiful is this inner beauty. A gentle humble, quiet spirit. Listen, makeup cannot beautify an ugly spirit. And it can't enhance a beautiful spirit. Focus on the inner beauty. Wow, how beautiful. Number three for the ladies, last one for the ladies, verse five and six. Wow, how faithful. And we have an example here of Sarah and Abraham. A couple, a married couple. A couple that God called to leave their country, leave their kindred, leave their family, and go to the land that I will show you. They they were promised a son late, late, late in life. And God uses them as an example for us. And think about this. Submission, again, it's not about you. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your boss. It's not about government. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And Sarah knew that. See, Sarah understood something. Sarah believed that God could speak to her through her husband in leading her. Now, wives, you've got to get to that place. You've got to get to the place where you believe that God can actually speak through your husband as he leads the family. You've got to believe that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with him on everything. That doesn't mean you always have to be on the same page. Don't you imagine Sarah was kind of Taken aback when Abram said, hey, we're leaving. We're going to a place God will show us. Well, where is it? Well, I don't know where it is. Well, where are we going? Well, I don't know. We're going to go until God tells us to stop. How many wives will be jumping up for joy to do that today? Or think about when, I, when Abraham went to Sarah. I mean, this conversation is not, I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down with Sarah and Abraham. I say, guys, y'all have to tell me about this conversation. Please tell me how the conversation went when Abraham, you looked at Sarah and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to take Isaac, our only son. I'm going to Mount Moriah. I'm going to sacrifice him on the mountain. How did that go for Sarah? She probably wasn't elated. Right? But Abraham believed God and Sarah believed Abraham. So this is an example. Sarah and Abraham were not perfect. They're not superheroes. They were flesh just like you and me. Sinners just like you and me. 
Husband and wife, just like you and me. Same problems, same issues, just like you and me. So why are they used here as an example? Because even in their brokenness, and their, though imperfect, God uses them as an example. Because Sarah adorned herself on the inner being and submitted to her husband and obeyed him, called him Lord. Now, you may think, well, maybe God used Sarah because she just wasn't that much to look at. You know, maybe she was kind of ugly on the outside, but very beautiful on the inside. Well, let me tell you something. Sarah was perhaps the most beautiful woman in all of Scripture. In fact, the Egyptians looked at her and said she was very beautiful. So for the Egyptians to look at an Israelite and say that, she, she had to be a knockout, right? And although she is beautiful on the outside, God uses her to point to her inner beauty and how much more important it is. And look what it says. Ladies, you are children of her, last part of verse 6. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What in the world does that mean? Listen to me, wives. Don't give in to fear. Don't give way to fear. I know the what-if questions are coming to you from left and right. You're thinking right here today, what if my husband loses his job? That's what you're thinking today. You're thinking, what if my kids get sick right now? You're thinking, what, what if we can't find somewhere to live? What, what if we can't pay the bills? What if we can't meet this deadline? What if we can't, what if we can't, what if we can't, what if we can't, what if I lose my job? What if we lose our home? What if, what if, what if, what if? Don't give way to that. Yes, those questions are there. We don't need to ignore them. Fear asks, what if? Faith says, even if. Don't give way to the fear. Don't give way to it. Be like Sarah. Trust in the Lord that he can actually lead your husband in a way that will lead your home. Live with a quiet, gentle, humble spirit. You can either give way to fear or you can have a gentle, quiet, humble spirit. You can't have both at the same time. You can't. So choose today to be faithful. Women of the Word are beautiful. They're powerful. They are faithful. Okay, guys, we have three for us. And before we go to the first one for the men, I want to ask you, are you or have you ever cried at a wedding? Anybody? Anybody brave enough to say I've cried at a wedding? That was a smooth move up there. One of our men put his hand up and then put it around his wife up there. I just saw him do that. <laughs> smooth move up there. Anybody cried a wedding? Erwin Lutzer said this. Thank you. Thank you. Erwin Lutzer said it like this. It's often said that girls usually marry someone like their father, which is why the mother of the bride always cries at weddings. <laughs> the next wedding you go to, you're going to be thinking about that, aren't you? So husbands... I know, ladies, it seems kind of unfair when you read this. There's six verses addressing you, only one verse addressing the husbands. Seems kind of out of whack there, doesn't it? Well, it's not because we've got it together, because we sure, certainly, certainly don't. It just means we can't, uh, uh, we, maybe our attention span's a lot shorter, <laughs> and can't use as many words. But here's one verse for the men. But in this verse, there are three Glimpses of what it looks like to be Christ-like. So we're going to look at all three. Number one, consider, or number four on your outline, consider her as valuable. Somebody say valuable. Yeah, consider her as valuable. 
live with your wives in an understanding way. This is a word that can be translated as very intimate. Live with her. From the bedroom to every room in the house, from every circumstance situation you have, honor your wife. Show her honor. Value her. In every way, value her. What does that mean? To live with her in an understanding way. It means to study her. Get to know her. Hey guys, it's going to take work for you to study her. To get to know her. To get to know what she likes and doesn't like. To get to know what makes her tick. Get to know what she's passionate about. What are her goals? What are her dreams? and get behind those goals and get behind those dreams and be her biggest supporter be her biggest fan support her 110% learn her and study her that's not something you do for one year of marriage and then stop Man, I've been married to Tanya for 20 years I hadn't scratched the surface of, of, of studying her and learning her and, 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 and knowing what she's passionate about and me caring about what she cares about. That's an ongoing thing, guys, that's on us. We're to do that and we're to learn her. You can't, if you want a flower to bud, you, you, you got to let go of the seed, right? Let it out there. Let it loose. Support her. Get behind her in any and every way. Show her honor. And that word for honor means to assign value to her. Assign great value to her. Treat her with respect. Assign her incredible value. There's a story of an island in the Pacific. And on this island, men, when they saw a lady they would like to be their wife, they would offer a dowry, a payment to the family for the wife, to the wife's family. And they would pay the dowry on this specific island with cows. So a one-cow wife was, you know, pretty decent wife a, a, a three cow wife was really something special four and five and six and so on well Johnny Lingo figured out hey I, I want to marry Sarita Sarita is the lady that I want to spend the rest of my life with and so he offered an unheard of dowry for Sarita he didn't offer two cows or three cows or four cows or even five cows he offered eight cows and that was unheard of never happened before and you look at Sarita, and she was a nice-looking lady, but certainly nothing, nothing that would garner eight cows. I mean, the villagers were just, what, what's happening here? And after she was married, they looked at her, and she was just so beautiful. And they said, what happened? What transformed Sarita? And Johnny said, look, has it ever occurred to any of y'all that when these ladies get together and they begin to talk, how it must make them feel when one of them says, well, my husband gave two cows for me, well, mine gave three for me, or mine gave four for me? How that must make them feel some of them more valued than others and some of them less than others. And man, I didn't want my wife feeling that. I wanted my wife to know she is honored and valued among all the women of the island. So, oh, so you did it just to make her happy? No, I didn't do it to make her happy. I love her. I'm spending my life with her. Of course I did it for that. And then he whispered, he said, but you know, I also wanted an eight-cow wife. I wanted the best-looking wife, the most valued wife on the island. I wanted her to be mine. Don't you want that, men? Well, that's up to you. That's not up to her. 
You value her. You show her honor. You show her respect, and it'll happen. But make her feel valued. Love her like no other. Consider her as valuable. Secondly, or number five on your outline, consider her as vulnerable. Now listen, I've read some dumb stuff in the last couple of years. Uh, One I read this week, the headline read, Trans athletes do, capital D-O, do retain an advantage in female sports. The Sports Council Equality Group concluded their study, and they concluded that transgender women have an advantage in some female sports, even when testosterone levels have been reduced. Trans athletes have an unfair advantage in female sports. Did we not know this? (laughs) Honestly, did a study have to tell us this? I mean, God tells us this in verse 7, that from a physical standpoint, God's Word tells us that the woman is the weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that women are somehow inferior intellectually or inferior morally or inferior spiritually? No, no, no. What it means is, generally speaking, women physically have less strength than men. Why is that in here? It's in here for a very important reason. It's not in here to take a jab at women. It's not in here to remind the ladies that physically, generally speaking, men are stronger physically. That's not why that's in here. This is not written for the ladies. This is written for the men. Husbands, it's in there for us. You ever heard of domestic violence? Now, I know sometimes husbands are abused. I get that. But I think we would agree the majority of the time it's the women who are being abused. And so this is in here, men, for us to understand something. It is never, ever, I don't care if you're a little boy, a teenager, a husband, married, unmarried, it doesn't matter. It is never okay for men to ever intimidate a woman and use our physical strength to do so. It's never okay for you to intimidate a lady by lording something over your wife or standing over her in any way. And this is what God is saying to us. God knew that the enemy is going to tempt men. And the temptation is intimidation. That you intimidate the woman to get what you want. And you use your strength to do that. That, God knew that was going to happen. So he put that in there for this reason. That we're to honor and respect and value her. We're to use our strength where we are stronger than she is. To protect her and provide for her. Never to intimidate her. That's never okay. It's never okay to insinuate intimidation. In fact the vessel here. The word for vessel is vase. Very delicate. Fragile. Think of China, how fragile China is. Think of, uh, think of the sacred vessels used in the worship of God in the temple in the Old Testament. That's, that's how sacred and valued our wives are or should be to us. So consider her as vulnerable, valuable. And number three, consider her as vital. Vital. I'm going to make a confession. Some things are just not essential, are they? 
Some things are essential, some things are not. Some things are vital, some things are not. I'll make a confession to you when Brady and Belle were toddlers, when they were little bitty, and I would read at night, read a book to them. I'm going to confess this before you today. I, I used to read them these books, and if the books were boring, I would skip lines. I felt bad about it, sure, but not bad enough to stop. <laughs> and if you say you've never done that, you're lying. <laughs> it just didn't seem that vital at the time, right? Just not that important at the time. That, that wasn't the point of what was happening here when you're reading to, your, to a toddler, right? But wives are extremely precious. In the sight of God, they are precious. They are valuable but they're also vital. And let me show you. This is a warning from God to husbands. And it's a strong warning. Maybe even a strange warning. But a warning nonetheless. Look at it with me. It says that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Joint heirs. Co-heirs. You know what that means? Equal. Different? Yes. Equal, of course. Not one is inferior to the other. Not one is superior than the other. Not one is overlooked. But we are co-heirs in the grace of life. You know what that means? Here's what it means practically. For the wives, this is what it means. Stop manipulating your husband. Stop it. Don't show him, show him grace, not justice. It's not, we're not co-heirs of the justice of life. We're co-heirs of grace, so stop manipulating him. Husbands, stop intimidating your wife. That's what this means. We live under the umbrella of grace, not justice, but grace. We give to one another what we don't deserve, grace. And here's the strange warning. Look at this. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Why in the world is that there? Think about like an enemy approaching, and before the enemy line, you dig a ditch to, to, to hinder the enemy from crossing. And that's what happens. That's what Satan does when you harbor bitterness in your heart, in your marriage, or unforgiveness in your marriage, or this or that that's between you and your marriage. It builds a, a trench. It's a, it's a hindrance to your prayers. This is how important marriage is. So important that your relationship with one another can affect the prayers being hindered unto God Almighty. Wives, be women of the word. How beautiful, how powerful, how faithful. And guys, consider her vulnerable. Consider her valuable. Consider her vital. You know, a lot of this text has to do with inner beauty. You remember the word at the very beginning of this I told you to pay attention to? Likewise. Somebody say likewise. We see it in verse 1. We see it in verse 7. It's addressed to women. It's addressed to men. It's addressed to wives. It's addressed to husbands. Likewise, in the same manner, in like manner, in the same way. What a word, man. This ties us right back to the cross. Ties us right back to Jesus. This inner beauty that is spoken of here is very important. Let me, let me ask you this question. When was Jesus the most beautiful when he was on this earth? When was he the most beautiful when he was on this earth? In fact, it's interesting that from the world's perspective... The ugliest Jesus ever was 
is from our perspective as a church, the most beautiful that Jesus ever was. When Jesus hung on that tree, when he was, the Bible says, unrecognizable, beaten beyond recognition, his skin shredded, literally shredded, the crown of thorns on his head, the blood-soaked cross, as he hung there bleeding and dying, the world looked at him and said, Jesus has never been uglier. Criminal. Guilty. He's never been uglier. But as a follower of Christ, we look at that same cross and, and, and we say, Jesus has never been more beautiful than dying on that tree. In your place and in my place. In your stead and in my stead. Now I know you've probably watched The Passion of the Christ and I know there's times in that movie that you have to turn your head. You squint your eyes or you close your eyes or you kind of give a grimace because it's not easy to watch. You don't walk away from The Passion of Christ thinking, man, that was beautiful externally. Externally, it was horrifying. The world looks at Jesus externally and says, how ugly. But God the Father looks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the suffering Son, the the suffering servant, the, the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. How beautiful is Christ, the inner beauty of Christ as he died on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) How beautiful is that? Today you'll be with me in paradise. How beautiful. And that can be the promise made to you. It is made to you today if you'll receive it. Some of you watching online have never put your faith in Christ. You've never put your trust in the one who died in your place, who was buried and raised to life. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And we know he proved that he died on the cross and that his death delivered us from our sins. And the proof is, the receipt is the resurrection. He was raised to life. He took sin, he took the ugliest of the ugliest, and he took it to the grave. And he rose in victory over that sin, death, and the grave. And you can too, but you've got to come through Jesus. There's no other way. So today, I want to challenge you that. If you're in the room or not, if you're in the room, in fact, would you stand with me all over this place? If you'd stand up and if you're worshiping at home, would you bow with us now? And I want to just lead you in a prayer to trust Christ as your Savior. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin is the reason you died on the cross. To satisfy God's wrath and to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe that you were buried and raised to life. And today I want to put my trust and faith in you. I call upon you, Jesus. Help me. Save me. Today. Some of you have done that, but you know what? You're not submitting to your husband as you should. You're not showing honor and respect to your wife as you should. And you need to come down to these steps and just pray that the Holy Spirit would help you some of you have an unbelieving spouse that you need to come and pray for him or her some of you have a desire to be a part of this church and we want you to come and make it known that I'd like to join this church or maybe baptism is something you need to 
decide today to do and follow through with. Submitting to the authority over you in the person of Jesus. Would you respond to the authority of God's word today? Would you respond by coming to these steps? and Whatever business you need to do with the Lord today, would you do it? As a family, as a couple, as a single, would you do that today? Father, help us be Christ-like. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said,